Um, we are continuing today our series Open Handed, so looking at this whole area of money uh, and generosity. Um, and I just wanted to start by looking at this photo that hopefully will come up on the screen. Uh, this was taken back in 1996 when, uh, for a couple of months in the summer, I went and worked at a camp in Canada. Um, I, I can't believe actually that I spent that long in a tent after four days at Limitless with our young people last year. It almost ended me. Um, but anyway, I went, I had a brilliant time with camping. And then after I'd finished camping, I went backpacking um, around Canada. So a lot of us did that. We sort of, you know, earned money working at the camp, and then we used the money to go backpacking. And I don't know if you can see in the photo, right at the end of the bed there is my trusty green backpack that I had with me for my travels. Um, it's since fallen apart, otherwise I'd have brought it in with me this morning. And my little backpack that I had was my world for the two months that I went travelling. So I had my sleeping bag hanging off it, a cushion shoved in at the top, which was my pillow, some boots slung to it, and then all of the clothes that I needed was in my backpack. And that's what I had for the couple of months I was both working in Canada and then backpacking around afterwards. And I really remember the day that I came home, and at that point I was kind of based at my parents' house, and coming back to my parents' house, which was a relatively small house, you know, my bedroom was really just a bed, a desk, and a tiny little bit of floor. And I remember getting back into my bedroom, taking the backpack off, and really being struck by the thought of being in the house and thinking, what is all this stuff? Why do we need all this stuff? Because having lived really simply with my one little bag on my back for over a couple of months, coming home to a house that was full of things just felt a little bit nonsensical. I was like, what are all these things? Why do we need all these things? And as I was preparing for this talk and I was thinking about, well, what's the question that I ask myself now? So I live in a house uh, with um, five other people. Um, I've got my three children. We've got another girl living with us at the moment, my husband, me. That's five women and John. Please do pray for him later. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I don't ask myself, what's all this stuff? That's not my overriding question. My overriding question, if I really challenge myself at the moment in the kind of living crisis that we're in at the moment, is have we got enough? Are we going to be able to afford when our mortgage payments go up? Oh my goodness, look at the cost of the shopping this week. It's so much more than it was even last month. That the question I ask is not looking around and saying, why do we need all this stuff? It continually is, but will we have enough? Because so much of our time and our energy here in the Western world is spent focusing on money. A recent survey that took place in the UK looking at emotional well-being found that 80% of people said they would be happier if only they could earn more. An article that was written in the Guardian newspaper last month uh, found that out of the top 10% of the richest people in the UK, so the top 10% of the highest earners in the UK, when asked, said they didn't find themselves wealthy. That to answer the question, are you wealthy, they felt that they would have to earn more than they currently did. Because money is really powerful. It fills a lot of our thoughts, it fills a lot of our conversations. We want more, or we don't think we've got enough. We get jealous of others, which then leads to comparisons of, well, why have they got that stuff and I haven't got that stuff? Or why can they afford to do that and I can't? And so envy creeps in. It can take control of us, where simply we feel so overwhelmed that we don't know what to do with it, and we can end up in all sorts of trouble because money masters us and takes control of our lives. And the Bible agrees that money is really important. I think, as Judy mentioned a number of weeks ago, in the Gospels, those first four books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus' life, one in ten verses talks about money. 
God thinks it's a really important thing for us to be talking about and looking at. But in this world where money maybe feels so powerful, where it can take center stage in so much of our life, actually, can I say that the reason that Jesus might talk about money so much is not because Jesus wants your money, but because Jesus knows the hold that money can so easily have on each of us. From the youngest who look at someone who's got the new Nike Air trainers to the oldest who are maybe saying, well, why can't I enjoy my retirement in the way that other people are? Jesus teaches on money because he has an awareness that money can so easily become a master of our lives. Something that stops us from living truly with God, Jesus, right at the center of our lives. And I don't know if you've ever um, read this story of the, of the rich uh, man in children's Bibles, but I was just quite interested to see what children's Bibles said about it. So I was looking at different children's Bibles in our um, house, kind of in the lead up to this week. And it's quite interesting. A number of the books of the Bible, children's Bibles, tell this story quite differently to how I think Jesus tells this story, as we heard this morning. Because if you look at lots of children's Bibles, it has a cartoon version of this quite arrogant, wealthy man coming up to Jesus and and saying, right, I want to know how I get in eternal life. Tell me now. Jesus says, give away all your stuff. And this arrogant man simply turns his back on Jesus, puts his hand up and walks away. It's a story of someone who's just quite arrogant, saying, I've got stuff and I don't want to get rid of my stuff. But actually, I think that's quite different to the version that we read in the Bible. Because we read in chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was a really wealthy man. He wasn't someone who probably was used to falling on his knees in front of other people. He was probably someone who was used to other people falling on their knees before him because he had the stuff. He was wealthy. He would have had status. He would have had position and power. But here he is, humbly, on his knees before Jesus. He saw in Jesus somebody who had the wisdom, the answer to this question that was so bent so much to him. How can I have internal, inherit eternal life? How can I be with this God that I know forever? There was a humility and there was a hunger within him that he wanted to know something of the wisdom that this teacher could tell him. He fell on his knees. He saw the importance of Jesus, not just as someone who he could chat to, but someone who it was worth falling on his knees before and asking a question of. And then he goes on, and he, after he's asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus first and foremost points back to God. No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus goes on to say, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your mother and father. And then the man replies, teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. This was somebody who had read his scriptures. He had read the holy books. He knew what they said, but not only had he read them, he also knew them. He knew them so that when Jesus said, hang on, these are the commandments, he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. I've read those. I've learned those. I know those. And then what does he say? Teacher, I have kept all of these things since I was a boy. He's not only just read his scriptures. He not only knows his scriptures, but he is living his scriptures as well. He's living them out. And you notice the commandments that Jesus gives are all external outward things, things that people could see in his life. 
Was he honouring his mother and father? They could probably see that. Was he committing adultery? Someone probably would have seen that. They were all the external things that people could look at this young man and say, yeah, he's living his scriptures. And at this point, maybe rather than the children's versions where we look at and we go, well, we're not that arrogant man, actually we might easily see ourselves. That maybe we are people who read our Bible who know our Bible, who are trying our hardest to live out the things that it says in the Bible. But then Jesus says and answers him, there is still one thing you haven't done, or in other versions, one thing that you lack. But what I love, and I really love uh, in the version that, um, is that in this moment where Jesus says, there is still one thing you lack. Yes, you've read your scriptures. Yes, you know them. Yes, you're living them out. But there is still something that you lack, which is keeping you from knowing me right at the center of your life. But before Jesus answers and says what it is, we read and we have heard he genuinely loved him. This wasn't Jesus going, I am so angry with you. I'm so cross with you. You are so arrogant. You're living this life where you're not knowing what to do. Jesus is looking at this guy in front of him on his knees and he genuinely loves him. He loves him so much that when he sees this man, he looks at him and knows there is something that is stopping this guy from living with the fullness of Jesus right at the center of his life. And Jesus loves him. And he says, I don't want you to live like that because I love you. There is one thing that you lack. And so he tells him, you must go and give away all of your possessions, all of your wealth and give it to the poor. Now, I don't know if you've heard these verses spoken on before, but I've heard these verses spoken on before. And I've heard in another church that I used to be a part of a very long time ago, someone say that this story is a prime example of why you cannot be wealthy and know Jesus. I'm not sure that that is exactly what this story is saying. Because we read of another encounter that Jesus has with a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away half of what I earn and I'm going to give it to the poor. And Jesus, in the midst of this conversation with Zacchaeus, says, salvation has come to you today. This Zacchaeus did not have to give away all of his possessions. Because I don't think that this story is about Jesus saying, go and get rid of all of your wealth, because if you have got any wealth, there is no way that you can know me. I think instead, it's about Jesus saying, what is the priority in your life? And that Jesus looked at this man as he loved him deeply. He knew that for this guy, wealth was so important, wealth was so at the center of his life, that he knew that was the one thing that was stopping him from fully knowing Jesus in his life. And so Jesus says, do you know what? For you to really know, you need to give it away. Tim Keller says, a relationship with Jesus demands more than you could ever thought, but offers more than you could ever imagine. When this man came up to Jesus, he probably didn't think that Jesus was going to say, give away all of your wealth. Otherwise, I'm not sure he probably would have come and asked the question. But actually, I'm not sure that this man also really understood what it was that was on offer for him. That actually a relationship with Jesus genuinely could change his life in a way that he probably couldn't understand in that moment. Fully understand what it would mean to move wealth out of the centre and to put Jesus right at the centre of his life. Because in amongst our reading of the Bible, in amongst our trying to keep it and do good works, actually... The most important thing is that Jesus is right at the center of our life, above everything else. When I was at um, university, 
had a friend who went off and did a, a, an overseas trip. She went to a country that was quite poverty-stricken. And I remember her telling me about an encounter that she had with a lady that she met on her trip. And I wrote the words down in my diary because they impacted me so much. She met this lady uh, who had a number of children, and they lived basically like in a little shack. It was like a shed. It was one room. That's all they had. They hardly had any possessions. Um, they were very fortunate enough to live near clean running water, so they had access to clean water. But they didn't have access to daily food. So they lived day by day, and they lived kind of hand to mouth, uh, seeing how they could get through each day. And these are the words that this lady said to my friend. I feel sad for those who seem to have so much, because it seems so much harder for them to find the one thing that could daily give them joy, peace, comfort, and an unwavering and unconditional love based simply on whose you are, not on what you have or what you do. In the material world, so in the world that we find ourselves living in, and we look around so much, this lady had absolutely nothing, apart from this little shack that she lived in. But in the spiritual world, she had everything, because Jesus was fully the foremost, first and foremost, in her thoughts, in her actions, in her life. And in her life because of this, because she first and foremost had Jesus rooted at the centre, she had a life that was free from so much of the jealousy, the anger, the distraction, the boredom, the materialism, the self-focus, which can so easily creep into all of our lives when we allow other things to creep in and become at the centre over Jesus. She didn't have the stuff that the world would say to her, you need to have to live a brilliant life. She also didn't even have the expectation that she had a right to have the stuff that the world would say you had to have to live a good life. She simply had Jesus. And what a beautiful thing that for so many of us, we would probably look at her and say, wow, how can we go and help you in the poverty that you're living in? But in fact, she looked back at us and said, how can I help you in the poverty that you're living in? What a beautiful story. And there is a massive freedom that this lady had found and that I think we can find when we do stop focusing on money, when we let other things come in before and, and kind of get into the centre. Because it can stop and it will stop the comparison and jealousy. You know, when your friend has got that new video game and you desperately want it, but your parents have said, no, sorry, we can't afford that, you can't have that right now. Actually, you live in a different freedom. You live in a freedom where jealousy has gone because Jesus is right there at the centre saying, you were worth dying for. Never mind that video game. You are worth more to me than anything you could possibly imagine. I was chatting to a friend the other week. We went out for coffee, and we were both very privileged growing up in families where we went on holidays each year. And we were kind of chatting about how that for us is quite a, a big sort of like point where we know we go a little bit off kilter because we can easily look at other people and go, oh, hang on, they're going on like three overseas holidays each year. How can that happen? We want to go and we want to do that. And we had a really good sort of like challenging conversation with each other to really pull ourselves up and just say, hang on, what's that about? That's not living with Jesus right at the centre. That's living with jealousy and comparison, not living in the freedom that he would want for us. It can help us stop, have a poverty perspective where we spend our lives feeling like I just haven't got enough stuff and where we kind of have to justify all of our spending by saying, oh, well, I can only afford it because someone else has helped me. Jesus says, live in the freedom. You don't need to worry about getting more stuff or justifying why you have the stuff that you do because if I'm at the centre, then it's okay. 
How many times have you found yourself saying, oh, when someone comes up and comments on a new item of clothing or something you've brought, oh, actually, I got it from a charity shop, it was only 50p. That's not living in the freedom that Jesus wants us to live in. We don't have to have that poverty perspective when he's at the centre. It stops us living in that kind of materialistic mindset where we really believe that the only way we can be happy is to get more stuff. And so we keep buying more stuff to make ourselves happy. We make unwise choices with our money. We can spend money that we don't have on stuff that we don't need. But where will we ever end? Where will we stop buying the stuff? Because that one thing won't be enough because we'll always need that next thing, that next thing. Jesus living at the center can also stop us from asking for help when money becomes so powerful and overwhelming that we don't feel like we can ask for help. Because when Jesus is at the center, even when we find ourselves in real trouble with money or it feels like it has overwhelmed us and we don't know what to do, Jesus says, do you know what? I'm here and there are people who are here who want to help you too. You don't have to let this master you. You don't have to let this overwhelm you. In uh, John Mark Comer's uh, new book, Practicing the Way, he writes these words. For years when I read about monks and nuns who gave up a normal life to do little else besides pray, I would think they were a little crazy. For the record, some of them were, and some more than just a little. But what if we're the ones who are unhinged? We who would rather spend our money so that we can binge Netflix or go shopping or play fantasy football than commune with love loving. We who would rather give away the vast majority of our time slaving away for some job that will chew us up, spit us out the moment we're no longer useful to the bottom line. We who choose to spend hours every day on expensive phones that we've spent our money on, yet claim we don't have time for God. What if we're the ones who have lost touch with reality, who are wasting our lives on trivial things? At the end of the story of the rich ruler, of the rich man that we have been looking at this morning, he makes a choice. Jesus says to him, you can inherit eternal life. You can know what it is to live a life with me right at the center. And Jesus gives him that invitation with his arms open wide, with genuine love, because he looks at this man and loves him so much. And what does this man do? He chooses to walk away. But how does he walk away? At this, the man's face fell. He went his way sad because he had great wealth. This man did not skip off into the sunset towards his money and his wealth with joy in his heart, with happiness going, I've got all this money in the world. He walked away from Jesus and he was sad because all the wealth he had, all of the money he owned could never fill that gap that Jesus wanted to fill that place that Jesus wanted to take right at the center of his life. And that for each of us, with genuine love, Jesus stands with his arms open wide to say, I love you. My invitation is for every single one of you to put me at the center of your life, to know a life that can be free from these things that hold us back so easily in so many different ways for each of us. So as we come to finish, what can our response be? put Jesus at the centre of it all, first and foremost, above other things. Give him our time, our thoughts. And I don't know about you, but I uh, sometimes really struggle when I hear things like this. I'm like, great, but how? <laughs> and I read this uh, thing the other day, which was like, oh yeah, brilliant. It was just a little, little thing. And it said, choose a psalm over your phone. 
I don't know what your morning routine is, but often I kind of wake up in a blur in the morning, grab my phone and just check the news. And it really struck me when it said that, just actually if you can change even those one little habits of waking up, not grabbing your phone, grabbing a psalm, reading that psalm. If you do that every morning for a year, those words of that psalm will be entrenched in your brain. So that when you come to those moments where you're feeling jealous or angry, actually those words that are written in the Bible will be the thing because of that habit you have formed that your mind will first go to. What are those little things that you can change to put Jesus right at the center of your life? To create habits which mean your mind first go to Jesus before they go to other things. John Stott said, Life, in fact, is a pilgrimage from one moment of nakedness to another. So we should travel light and simply. How can we live simply with Jesus at the center? And the second one, how can we be uh, people who break the power that money has in our lives to put Jesus right at the center? Well, let's be radically generous people. People who can say, actually, we're not going to have that jealousy. We're not going to have that self-focus. Actually, we're going to be radically generous. And sometimes that is going to mean giving away the stuff that we love or the stuff that we want to get hold of because we know that he's taken a greater hold in our lives than Jesus has. Just before Christmas, I was on the receiving end of some radical generosity. And it was one of those moments where I just sort of felt that sense of God with me in a way that I hadn't felt for quite a while. It was a beautiful moment. We have a, a, a girl staying with us at the moment who has some specific dietary needs. And someone, one morning on a Saturday, my little Monzo app on my phone pinged. And I was like, oh, what's that? Picked it up. Someone had put some money into our bank account. And they'd put on the app, you can put a little note with it, and they'd said it was simply to help cover the costs of the extra food that we were needing to buy for this girl. It was a radically generous act because it wasn't something we asked for. It wasn't from someone whom I would expect it at all. And also, it wasn't something we really, really needed. We could afford to pay for this extra food. But it was radically generous. Somebody just saying, we see what's happening here, and we want to support you and bless you. And we felt so blessed by that. Radical generosity helped move us closer to God. But radical generosity also helps us move closer to God as we do it. We read in the book of Mark, just a little bit over from the story that we have read this morning. So in chapter 12, a story that uh, some of us might be really familiar with. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. (laughs) Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. It's not about the amount that we give or the amount that we can give. It's about the radically generous way that we do it. And Nate's going to come and speak to us next week more on this. But it might be, what's your one radically generous thing to do? Maybe, and this is something that happens in my household a lot, if you've got an item of clothing that you love loads and your sister wants to wear it, why don't you be radically generous and let your sister wear it? Maybe as we go into this time of Lent, which starts on Wednesday, that period of 40 days leading up to Easter, where Christians so often give something up to focus on the sacrifice that Jesus made, maybe rather than give up, we could give away. We could think about the ways that we could radically bless others. 
where it takes that significant step of saying it feels uncomfortable at the moment to do something different with our finances rather than just hold it for ourselves. Actually, how can we be radically generous people who live with open hands? She say, we don't want this to have a hold in our lives. We want Jesus to be right at the center. Corrie Ten Boom said, hold loosely to the things of this life so that if God requires them of you, it will be easy to let them go. What is it that you are holding on to today that actually you know you need to just open your hand and say, God, I want to be a radically generous person in my life? And the third response is, as I've said already, that we should not be afraid to get help. Money can so easily become our master. And in any relationship where there is abuse of power, it can be really hard for the person who feels abused to stand up and ask for help. But if you are here this morning, or you're joining us at home this morning, or you know of others in your life who are struggling with money at this time... Let's be people who support one another and really do not let money master us. Say that even in the midst of the things that feel so overwhelming and so big and too much to handle, actually Jesus can be at the centre. And we're very fortunate here as a church that we have wonderful ministries like Riverside Money Advice and Riverside Pantry. People who want to stand alongside you and say, when it feels like money has become your master, actually we are going to support you and we are going to help you. You can live in a freedom of knowing Jesus is at the center and there will be hope for you one day. And if that's you or someone that you know, please do get in touch with us. We would love to put you in touch with someone who can really help and support you. So just as we finish, how can we be people who live radical lives with Jesus at the center, who don't allow money and wealth to take a hold? How can we be people who put Jesus at the center? I'm just going to finish with these words from John Mark Homer. So in closing, for those of you who want to embark on the journey of a lifetime, let me offer you a few next steps. You must daily hold before your mind and imagination the beauty and possibility of life in the kingdom of God. Day by day, fill your heart with the wonder of the person, gospel, and life of Jesus. Read and reread the Gospels. Pour over each story. Turn your mind to him in prayer. Gaze on the Son of God. Once your heart is consumed by a vision of Jesus, you must begin right where you are. Take one small step immediately. And what for you is that next small step? To step into the waters of baptism? To join a community? To be a radical giver? Or are you simply ready to offer an honest prayer to God now that although you still have a lot of unanswered questions, for the first time, you want to want him? As it is said in the East, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one small step. Just take the first step, then the next, and then whatever comes after. And who knows where following Jesus will take you? And when the path is long and hard, when you stumble or lose your way, remember, fall and get up. Fall and get up. Fall and get up and begin again.